Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. In this episode, we continue our contemplation of magic from the Wisdom, Love, and Beauty Archives. Today we continue our inquiry into Yeats's third principle of magic. We left off with the idea of patterning and some questions of spiritual common law, not necessarily in traditional form, but questions like what is the difference between the way human beings think and the way nature functions? What is the patterning that connects all things? And what is the meaning of the phrase, we are a patterning of primordial awareness? Patterning isn't an object. In fact, we suffer because we turn our patterning into objects. We mistake primordial awareness, which is open and spacious, for something solid. We treat the manifestations of patternings as objects, rather than as a dance of patterning, a dance of pure relationality, which we ourselves are, intimately. Our participation can't be questioned, but we do live as if there could be a distance, as if we're looking at some pattern that's out there, as if the manifestations of patterning are somehow separate, fragmented objects in a world that we move around in, as if it's a stage. So patterning isn't an object. We aren't objects. We aren't really subjects either, not in the ordinary sense, because the notion of subject goes altogether with the duality of subject and object. And we can find a lot of talk about pattern because people speak about pattern thinking, for instance, noticing patterns. That's sometimes portrayed even as a some aspect of superintelligence in certain science fiction because the cognitive scientists understand pattern recognition goes all together with intelligence. But if we are pattern thinking, this is, I'm saying that in a different way. It's not that we are pattern thinking, we are pattern thinking the thinking of patterning, not a subject capable of thinking about patterns as an object, but patterning itself, the process, as thinking. What does that make our real intelligence? What is patterning in the deepest spiritual sense? That's part of what we're trying to get at, and to get at the nature of patterning is not so easy. We could Imagine relationality that constellates and even constitutes what we call mind and what we call matter. Our experience of knowing, 
And remember, that's pervasive. We're talking about something that... Uh, we talk about knowledge like it's some abstract thing, but everyone navigates the world by what they think they know. We're constantly knowing things. And it's fascinating to me how often people think of philosophy as abstraction, and yet the people I meet are loaded with abstraction because we can't live without philosophy. And indeed, philosophy tries to get us out of our abstractions and into real life. And part of the way we keep love wisdom at a distance is to say, well, it's all heady and intellectual and abstract and it goes over my head. Meanwhile, that that's how we live. Heady, abstract, and up outside of ourselves, so to speak, at a distance from life. We're living over our head. And love wisdom means coming back down into reality, into experience. And our experience of knowing, looked at in a relative way, arises as part of a vast and integrated knowing that weaves together the whole of creation. Certainly the community of life on earth, but also the cosmos if we have the vision to sense that. Now we're talking about weaving here, the notion of weaving or knitting. And we had mentioned Bateson before. Bateson has come up in our contemplations before, and last time with patterning I think we talked about Bateson. And he specifically used the word knit. And he referred to what he called the pattern that connects. Something about a pattern that knits together all the knowing. Or the knowing knits together all of creation, the thinking. Mind knitting together the whole community of life. Now we mean something cosmic when we're talking about patterning. We're, 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 we're actually laying out a bit of a pattern, so we, we might move around a little. Stay with it, you'll see the patterning. It, it might begin to emerge. We don't want to think we understand it too quickly. We're just trying to ask how we could begin to understand it, really. And we want a cosmic perspective. We're looking for visionary love wisdom here. And what we're talking about is very relevant to life on Earth, but cosmic comes from the Greek word cosmos, which is an ordering. The roots of philosophy or love wisdom in ancient Greece grow from a feel for the ordering of life, that life is not some mere chaos. It's not unruly, even in its wildness. It's a cosmos. So we could say a sacred creative ordering arises as what we see and experience in general. We could also say that a sacred creative ordering gives rise to all things, or constitutes them, creates them. Cosmic vision, which is visionary love wisdom, can reveal this sacred creative ordering. And we could refer to the sacred creative ordering as logos, as Tao, as the Taoists do, as the good, that's Plato's term for it. We could refer to it as the great mystery, the creator, the Dharma, Pratitya Samutpada, 
wildness, sacredness, the divine. We call it what we feel is most appropriate, what gives it reverence and also seems to evoke the feel for us. We can call it God or the mind of God or Sophia. It appears in many guises and it's called by many God names and goddess names because we have a feeling for its sacredness, for kind of divinity in it, a wonder. And that's all part of the magic that we're trying to get at. But what we notice as we consider different ways of talking about this, and we look at Bateson, Jung, Wolfgang Pauli, Buddha, Socrates, Jesus, and countless others, they seem to point toward a patterning that pervades all things, guiding alike the flight of the sparrow and the life of the sage. That's how the philosopher Erezim Kohak puts it. I like that line. The patterning guiding alike the flight of the sparrow and the life of the sage. Now we can sense this in a scientific mode. We could talk about pattern in a more scientific way of thinking. But dominant culture science seems too young and immature, really. It's too partial and limited to grant us any significant access to the deeper meaning of patterning that would really inform our lives and would help the community of life, help us and the community of life. And that's why Bateson himself, who was a very committed scientist, very scientific thinker, but he repeatedly emphasizes the aesthetic. And in some ways, he seems to have preferred the company of even anti-scientific people. Bateson, this committed atheistic scientist, acknowledged the potential value of an anti-scientific mind and even a religious mind. We can recall that he lived at Esalen. It's a New Agey sort of place, if you've never heard of it, in California, not too far from where I live. You can look it up. He seems to have preferred what he felt were the minor insanities he might have encountered there, and which we might see in certain religious beliefs, he seems to prefer these minor insanities to the major insanity gripping the dominant culture, including its science. So that's why we kind of bump up against something if we just try to consider magic scientifically, even though we should. We have scientific evidence for magic, and we have scientific ways of beginning to think about it, but our science is immature. I think we'll, we need, it's time for a paradigm shift. And we say that, we don't realize that that's a very significant thing to say. And that we haven't fully metabolized the last major revolutions that we've had, the recent ones. And David Bohm tried to get at, at some of that in his work. He tried to touch on some of these things from a scientific perspective, or we could say with a scientific sensibility and clarity, but with also a sensitivity to the spiritual and philosophical dimensions. In a way, Bohm became more a philosopher 
at the end of his life than a scientist, but he did keep doing a, a serious research. His work is still being taken up by serious researchers. And Bohm wrote that the new quantum context calls for a new kind of description. Just that. Again, we haven't metabolized that. The new quantum context that we live in calls for a new kind of description, one that gets us beyond the duality of the observer and the observed, which we remain trapped in. And this is crucial for understanding magic. And Bohm is saying, our culture really hasn't gotten to this yet. And Bateson agrees. We cite these people as careful scientific thinkers. Because immature or not, science still serves as the gold standard of knowledge in our culture. I criticize science in many ways in my own work, did that while I was in the academy and still do. But I'm not going to ignore the relevant science on any particular subject matter. We need to deal with it. And there is a cogency to dominant culture science. It reveals certain things. That doesn't mean it's not also immature, incomplete, and fragmented. Bohm's work tried to help us get at those aspects that it does reveal, those aspects of reality that where it seems to be cogent and helpful. And also, Bohm tried to help us think forward to better ways of knowing and being, living and loving. We can have a better science, which, in fact, might be a more magical science. It might be more like magic. Science could become a practice of magic. And we could also say that maybe traditional practice of magic was part of the science of indigenous cultures. Bohm tried to help us see that the very form of the experimental conditions and the meaning of the experimental results go together as a whole. Notice that. This might seem strange. Why are we talking about this? Because, again, the science has a cogency. And we're trying to ask, well, what is patterning? And, and we're trying to say, well, maybe we don't understand. And if we consider how we just naively think about science, we think, well, there, you have the experimental conditions, the setup, and then you have the results. And there's a kind of linear thinking. We set up the experiment, we have a linear cause and effect. And Bohm is saying, no, this is a patterned whole. And any attempt at analysis into autonomous elements misses the point and covers over the lessons that we really need to learn. We habitually separate the observer and the observed, and this distorts reality. So we're talking about how difficult it would be for us to truly understand and understand magic because magic means giving this up, giving up this habit of separation, this distortion of reality. 
that most everyone just habitually, naively engages in, even if they believe in magic. So it's, it's, this is the difference between what our professed beliefs are and our real practice and way of life. Magic as we mean it means the end of distorting our reality. And it means seeing reality as it is, participating in reality as it is. And so we're just talking about the great challenge magic presents as a spiritual practice because many people who practice magic still have this duality in place. In fact, still have many distortions in place. Magic defies the duality, but the magician who has not become a sage keeps the duality in place, consciously or not. It's just like the rest of us. Bohm understood that wholeness could not become an object of knowledge. Knowledge typically functions by having an object. That's how we know. A person says, I know horses. Another person says, I know how to cook. I know how to do this. I know how to do that. I know how to fix the economy. I know the meaning of money. So we treat things like this. We treat the horse like an object automatically. I know horses. We walk up to the horse and immediately relate to it as separate. But if the cosmos fundamentally arises as a wholeness, then especially the cosmos we can't make into an object and know it as we claim to know things like the Pythagorean theorem. And as we get more sensitive about what that means, we realize we can't even know a horse or a lover or our child or any other being, process, moment, or situation in that way. We can't do it. And yet, it's our habit, our karma. Karma just is this mistake and its inevitable consequences. How do we wonder stand differently? Also understand differently, but live differently. How do we know horses and each other and ourselves and the whole world in a better way? That's the question of magic, the question of magical consciousness. And it's simply perplexing, as the anthropologist C.L. Martin put it. The questions that we're asking are just perplexing from within conquest consciousness. seems we really have to admit, just open up to the perplexing nature of all of this. And we, you may recall at the beginning of la the last contemplation, we emphasized what Yeats said, that we don't really know what we're talking about. We don't know what it is, and maybe we're trying to move toward it. And to help us move toward it, David Bohm did what Jung did, what Bateson did, what others have done. 
he made an analogy with pattern, and that's why we're talking about pattern. Pattern is implied in Yeats's third principle, and then we see these thinkers, scientific and spiritual, talking about pattern. And Bohm and Bateson talk about it particularly in terms of understanding the nature of reality. And Bohm said that metaphorically, the cosmos is like a magic carpet. Well, okay, he didn't say a magic carpet, but he said this, that we could imagine a pattern like we might find in a carpet. We're saying it must be a magic carpet because a cosmos isn't, certainly isn't a Persian rug. But he pointed out that when we go to speak about the pattern itself, so you're imagining a pattern carpet, like a pattern you might find in a carpet, and we want to talk about the pattern, it makes no real sense. It has no real meaning to speak about the parts of the pattern and to refer to them like separate objects interacting with each other. But that's how we live. We live as if the world is separate objects, interacting. And Bohm wants us to try to begin to sense patterning and wholeness. If we focus on the pattern, the pattern as a whole, not parts, that could begin to create a profound shift that is eventually when we realize it. The shift happens in relation to the fact that part of a pattern isn't a pattern. Take a silly example. We can talk about a checkerboard pattern. But one black square is not a checkerboard pattern. The pattern is a pattern, not a collection of parts. We might assemble the parts into a pattern or in accord with a pattern, but the cosmos, first of all, is not an assembly of parts shipped in from somewhere else and put together. Obviously, the concept makes no sense. The cosmos is a whole, and we can't ship in parts from someplace and, and put it together. Nature here on Earth is like that too. Even to talk about assembling something in accord with a pattern, though, means the pattern has its own life and is already, always, a wholeness. So, too, with nature and the way nature actually functions, which stands in contrast to the way human beings think. So there we have our spiritual common law again, the difference between the way human beings think and the way nature actually functions. So we're differentiating between thinking and patterns and patterning itself as thinking. Human beings can think in terms of patterns. They can try to assemble things in accord with patterns. And this idea of pattern recognition means we are recognizing them. And we're just trying to get away from the application of patterns or no noticing what we think are here's a pattern and what would it mean to be patterning thinking.
Bohm invited us to see how quantum physics illustrates some of these things clearly for us. We perceive a pattern and we call it an electron. And we see patterns of behavior of the electrons and we call them experimental results. And the pattern we think we see we may also call a theory, which we then use to predict further patterns. But it's all fragmented. We mistakenly speak of an electron and an observing instrument and experimental results and an observer and the observer's theory and way of knowing. All pieces, fragments. In fact, it arises as a single patterning. The experiment, what we refer to as an experiment, arises as a single patterning. The cosmos is a single process that appears to unfold in multiple locations. When we poke at the patterning the way we habitually do, we pull out things, what we think are things, what we think are elements, we call them parts. And in the process we ignore and even cover over the fact, the primal fact of the overall patterning. And we therefore reaffirm our ignorance by trampling on the pattern. We make a world of duality and fragments rather than realizing this wholeness. And when we ignore the patterning, and trample on its relationality, it creates degradation in the world. Magic means recognizing this primal fact and beginning to work with it skillfully. Now to go back to the example of a checkerboard, we could look at squares all day. We could carefully measure their size, take precise readings of the colors, you know, get the wavelength, exact wavelengths of the colors and maybe see if the variation of color, is it totally solid black and all the same color black? Is it totally solid red, all the same color red? What are the exact dimensions measured to the micrometer of the square? And we could do, we could do work for hours on this and we'd miss the pattern. We would have never noticed a checkerboard pattern. We'd be talking about parts. And obviously we do notice pattern to a certain degree. We just talked about that. But we're, we're trying to get at the fact that the patterning of life involves far more subtlety, nuance, complexity, sophistication, and profundity than a checkerboard pattern. And far more nuance, subtlety, complexity than even most of what our mathematics can handle because we can't handle a bunch of interacting variables. So we could talk about magic in terms of coupled oscillators or something and talk about how things can happen in sync. But the mathematics for widely distributed and widely differing apparent oscillators, we don't have it. And so the subtlety of the patterns that we're talking about that matter in life, it's essential because there's a tragedy there. So tragic, and but also maybe unsurprising that we miss the, the patterning, we start obsessing about parts, and then we start breaking down 
the delicate dance of relationships that is the patterning, the patterning that we depend on, the patterning that the magic of the world is made of. We miss it and we trample it. And so David Bohm realized that our primary emphasis now, especially if we want to heal ourselves and the world, our primary emphasis must become the undivided wholeness and sensitivity to its patterning. Magic involves the practice of patterning, participating in this wholeness, in the wholeness of patterning, rather than abstracting pieces and parts, rather than pursuing ordinary human purposes in accord with habitual human thinking. Magic is the practice of undivided wholeness. And there we go back to Gary Snyder's words from last time. You remember that line? It's an important essay. I recommend it again, The Etiquette of Freedom. And he writes there, to resolve the dichotomy of the civilized and the wild, we must first resolve to be whole. Really resolve and get serious about what kind of practice that demands from us. It's the practice of magic. Our habit is abstracting pieces and parts out of the pattern, treating them as objects, treating them as separate from us in our own mind, pursuing our agendas in step-by-step fashion. It's everywhere. It's the whole, it's the whole of what we call economy. It's the whole of what we call capitalism. It's, it's the vast majority of what we call coaching, self-help, the wellness industry, all of it. It's pervasive in the dominant culture. And in fact, that's partly why we're resistant to magic, because it goes against a lot of the agendas we have that we think are good agendas. We think we've got a great agenda. We don't want to hear about magic then, because it derails those agendas. We want to believe that magic means that I get to have my agenda. Our karma predisposes us to see things as separate from us, separate from our mind and body and soul. Despite our beliefs, we might say, no, it's all, we're, it's all one, man. We all, I'm totally, it's all woven together. I believe in it. And these beliefs are not sufficient. Magic is not about belief. And karma here has to do with personal and collective practices, as well as our history, our ancestors. That's a heavy burden if you live in Turtle Island. Our practice makes a world in which things are separate from us. Our practice has to do with our human agendas and our human style of thinking, which, as Bateson said, differs from how nature functions. And real magic demands that we give all that up, and we don't want to. If we, if we like our agendas, we don't want to give it up. We just want to say that our agendas either are in accord with magic or we say there is no such thing as magic. Leave me alone. I'm pursuing my agenda in a rational way, scientific way. See, we get quite stuck. And just as a matter of habit, again, just how we practice, and it's largely unconscious too, because again, the conscious beliefs, it doesn't matter what we profess, it's how we live. 
And our typical way of knowing is something like one part of a pattern pointing to other parts of the pattern without the intimate, realized sense of patterning. And we keep using an active sense here. We're not talking about a pattern, but a process, because we start to treat pattern as a thing too. It's activity. And when one part of a pattern treats itself like an isolated thing in its manner of practice, not what it claims it believes, but when one part of a pattern treats itself like an isolated thing, not an interwoven process, and points at other parts of a pattern, which it also habitually treats as isolated things, patterning the dance the deeper activity and mystery gets lost. And then magic dies, sacredness dies, ecologies die, the inherent flow of meaningfulness gets thwarted, and people suffer. If we are woven into the fabric of reality, and that's not even necessarily the right way to put it, but if we arise as the interwovenness of the patterning of reality and we point at some supposed part and say that's a flower, in a profound sense we've gotten things incredibly wrong. Most especially, again, if that's what we do as a practice. That's just how we live. We practice in a way that points to flowers and sees them as objects. It's automatic. And yet the truth is that we ourselves, all together with everything we could possibly point to, all of that is a patterning, alive and alive. We are the whole together, together with the patterning as the flower. The threads of the flower go right through us, and we don't feel that. We don't see the, feel the thread or see it. We might believe in it. So if we picture this woven pattern, we imagine the pattern has a flowering bush. Imagine a woven pattern, big woven rug. And there's a flowering bush in the pattern of the, of the rug and butterflies and honeybees around it and trees nearby and a river. And we could then imagine a single thread that runs through flowers, bees, butterflies, trees, and a river. And so the statement, that is a flower, when we say something like that, patterning points at patterning, ignorant of its self-sameness, its real non-duality of unity and diversity, its existence as interwovenness, not as an object or a subject, but as a patterning with threads running right through, all shared, no flower, but rather flower and bee, and not even just flower and bee, but flower and hummingbird and bee and tree and river and mycelia and soil and stars and moon and song. The song, the person sings while they watch the butterflies and bees. But we don't feel those delicate threads. They're not really intimately real, are not alive. And because of the 
nature of the error we make, we essentially become thirsty while swimming in a lake. Taking up conscious purposes on the basis of this error results in pervasive negative side effects. Suffering in ourselves and in the world, inequality, injustice, ecological degradation, war, it all arises because of a fundamental error in how we know ourselves and the world, how we relate to ourselves and to all beings and ecologies. And again, at bottom, this should all feel perplexing because of how would we live? If, how, what would it mean to live like that? Not to just talk about beliefs, but to, to sense this patterning. How would we do it? Because consciousness can't hold the pattern, you see? Can't be an object. And consciousness, our little conscious mind, it just sees a little piece of the thread. So as the thread runs through your conscious mind right now, you get a little line. That's what you see. But you don't see the whole loop of the thread. The larger loop is not available because we just sense the little piece if we look with our ordinary mind. And so how do we sense the pattern that connects? What is it? What is the world if it is patterning? It has to remain a question. If we try to rush and say, well, I get it, I understand now, I believe all this, we're missing something. And to try to get at maybe the gap in our understanding, we could turn to an indigenous culture with a language, a language that reflects a cultural practice of wholeness. And that could give us a different perspective. What would it be like to think so differently? You know, how off are we? How differently could we see the world? And we don't ask this as if to say, well, we're plain wrong. We're just totally, there's nothing good in the dominant culture. That's silly. There's lots of wisdom in the dominant culture. Plenty of it. We've had wonderful sages and teachers. But we're going to consider Trobriander culture. Not because Trobriander culture is somehow perfect, but because its rootedness in certain aspects of reality that the dominant culture seems to obscure might then help us understand our confusion a little and empower us to begin moving toward greater wisdom, love, and beauty. The anthropologist Dorothy Lee tried to help the dominant culture understand Trobia under culture by evoking the notion of pattern. Unsurprising. She does the same thing that Bateson, Bohm, Jung, and countless others have done. She wrote that what we in the dominant culture consider a causal relationship in a sequence of connected events, that is to the trobriander an ingredient of a patterned whole. Note that contrast. We think in terms of simple-minded cause and effect, as if the universe were a bunch of billiard balls or a big machine. We've been trained that way, and we can't wish it out of our unconscious. The idea has us. It's like the meaning of original sin. Something has us. And though we can get free of it, we can't do so by anything less than full initiation into the magic and mystery of life. 
Can't do it by an act of wishing it or willing it or claiming we believe otherwise. We would really have to let the old habits go. And that's not easy to do. They are our karma. They're just in us. In contrast to a person in the dominant culture, a trobriander thinks of causality as something that appears everywhere, not something in a linear sequence. It's the trunk of a tree, the post holding up a raised house, a word in a magical incantation. The threads run through everything. To get a little more precise, we can note that in the Trobriander language, we find no phrase that expresses the English notion for the purpose of, or so as to. That gives us a sense of the shift in perspective the Trobriander experience represents. They don't have these phrases. In fact, there's no why and no because. Isn't that remarkable? Imagine all the parents out there right now thinking, you mean their children don't go around asking them why all the time. They can't. There's no why or because. It's such a remarkable thing, we really have to let it land. A language that has no why, no because, no so as to, no for the purpose of. And yet, they do have a clear sense of patterning, which we could think of as the magic of the world. It's a very magical culture, in fact. And we're not endorsing it or saying, again, we're not saying it's perfect. It's a question of touching some aspect of experience that our culture covers over. They have a sense of a nonlinear creative force that makes things happen. The why is everywhere, so we don't have to have a word for it. We are it, and everything else is too. And we would have to realize this beyond our egocentric habits beyond the habits of thought and action in the dominant culture. Now think about what this means. Think about the conquest consciousness of the dominant culture, which also infects most people's notion of magic. It infects us in in countless ways, and it has spread everywhere. In conquest consciousness, we have a clear sense of deliberate purposive behavior. We value it. We valorize it. People setting goals, having agendas, having a dream or what they call a dream or a vision, which ordinarily has nothing to do with actually dreaming or vision in the spiritual sense. The dream is about founding a company, making money, whatever it might be. It's an agenda. It might be a nice agenda but we have this clear sense of deliberate purpose of behavior that we valorize. In Trobriander culture, that kind of behavior becomes something worthy of ethical repudiation. That's a stark fact. The thing we valorize is ethically repudiated in this culture of wholeness. For instance, if a person wants to court a beloved, a gift 
is expected as part of the patterning of courtship. But if somehow people found out that the gift was given in order to win the favor of the beloved, the person becomes ethically repudiated. So we see discernment in action here, and at the same time, Lee tells us, there are no terms for comparison. We could sit with that, especially those of us who like to think of mindfulness as non-judgmental awareness. Here we have discernment, but no terms for comparison. That's what Dorothy Lee tells us. She says, except for there are two rarely used verbs, she says. One that more or less means it differenting, and the other that more or less means it saming. Whatever terms people use to think of standards of behavior and to evaluate behavior in situations, they have a non-comparative quality without lacking discernment, which sounds paradoxical and should sound paradoxical. To help us understand this strange way of thinking, Lee gives us an analogy. And her analogy is knitting a sweater. Recall Bateson used the word knit. The image of weaving or knitting and the notion of patterning in general thus appears in Bateson, Bohm, Buddhism. It's in Carl Jung's work, in ecology, in cognitive science, and more. And now we find it as an offering to understand, help us understand this indigenous way of knowing and being, living and loving. And Lee points out that knitting the ribbing at the bottom of a sweater doesn't cause the making of the sleeves of the sweater. And knitting the sleeves doesn't cause the knitting of the neckline. Knitting each supposed part is not a matter of linear cause and effect, but rather each arises from the totality of the pattern, the whole pattern. The activity may seem to unfold in time, but it unfolds a patterning which in some sense always already exists each moment. Lee tells us that Trobrianders value and appreciate pattern. And so they live and act on the basis of nonlinear thinking. They can certainly perceive lineality, but they don't think, speak, and live on its basis. Similarly, indigenous cultures can perceive temporality. But left to their own ways, they don't think, speak, and live in accord with time as the Western consciousness does. In the case of time, we can go so far as to say that Time, as the Western consciousness understands it, doesn't really exist for maybe any other culture. I mean, now it's spread everywhere. Captain Clock and Colonel Calendar have conquered most of the world, so we find Western time everywhere. But that doesn't mean it's anything more than a quirk of conquest consciousness. And we see here, again, why we need to pacify our assertions that we understand all of this. We can talk about knitting a sweater, we can talk about pattern, we can think we understand it all. We can agree the dominant culture has gotten crazy 
Species are going extinct. We have some real problems. We may think we understand sanity and that we understand reality. But we in the dominant culture don't speak a language of patterning like this, a language of wholeness. Indeed, our language, for the most part, seduces us out of magical consciousness, seduces us out of a consciousness of wholeness and patterning, and it seduces us into fragmented ways of thinking. And it's no easy mess to get out of. Because if our very language has seduced us our whole lives into patterns of thought at odds with the nature of reality, we face some deep challenges. We don't speak a language like Tobriander, and it's not a strange anomaly. As a language, I mean. For instance, on the Wisdom, Love, and Beauty website, you can find a blog post series called Hologram, Ecogram, Mandala. And it inquires into the nature of patterning and how dominant culture thought patterns arise from and tend toward fragmentation rather than arising from and tending toward wholeness. In one of those posts, we look at the Blackfoot language and we consider what the Blackfoot philosophers Little Bear and Heavyhead say about their language. And they tell us there's no such thing as a word. Not really any such thing as sentences, no nouns or verbs in any ordinary sense. They say you have to force those concepts onto the Blackfoot language. But those fragments make sense to a person of conquest consciousness. And these Blackfoot philosophers start by pointing that out. In, in fact, they called the article a conceptual anatomy of the Blackfoot word. And it's an ironic title because they are trying to deliberately evoke attention. The authors want us to see that to a speaker of English, the very notion of a conceptual anatomy makes perfect sense. Say, oh, conceptual anatomy of the Blackfoot word, that sounds great, perfect. Our culture and our language are geared toward fragmenting things, cutting them up. And this is part of the tragic shift from love wisdom to science and technology, in fact. It's enacted out there because it's far easier to cut up a bird than it is to listen to what a bird might have to say to us. Far easier to dissect a frog than to become a wise, loving, and graceful human being and to live from and toward the wholeness and holiness of life. From the perspective of Blackfoot philosophers, Blackfoot peoples, the notions of analysis, objects, and anatomies seems like an imperative of conquest consciousness, but foreign to them. Heavy head and little bear want to point out something that we in the dominant culture cannot easily see, let alone understand. Wonderstand. And they want to point out that not all people make sense of the world that way, and that the world itself may not function according to to that kind of pattern of thought, which might be a pattern of insanity. To help us understand the Blackfoot way of thinking and how it contrasts with the thought patterns of the dominant culture, Heavy Head and Little Bear, give us the example of the word chair in English. Now recall, there are no real words in Blackfoot language. 
But they tell us that one common Blackfoot analog to this English word is an expression that has four dimensions. The article's worth reading because they go into a, a lot of interesting detail. And if they had to, if they tried to force into English what this expression means, in English it might come out something like this, become sit facilitating. That's all hyphenated, as if it were one word. Now again, they're, they're warning us there's nothing in this analogous expression that we could accurately equate with a chair as the speaker of English thinks of it. Because this Blackfoot expression has to do with process and relationship and interwovenness, not with a static object that exists from its own side. So they're not even talking about the same thing. We're talk- When we say the word chair, we're talking about an object. They're not talking about an object. They're talking about process and relationship and interwovenness. And again, we can say we believe in those things. That's not how, how we practice our lives. We sit on an object. We go grab a chair. And what they're doing here, Little Bear and Heavy Head, describe for us a chair as a facilitating event. It's an event, a facilitating event arising in total interwovenness with a human event. And those who know the work of the scientist J.J. Gibson on the ecology of perception may recognize something in this way of thinking, if you know J.J. Gibson's work. Now then, Little Bear and Heavy Head try to think about a simple English sentence. That boy brought this chair. And then what they try to do is to transcribe from Blackfoot into English something that could express that basic happening. And they say it could go something like this. And again, these are hyphenated expressions that have four dimensions. So here it goes. That boy brought this chair. By way of transfer moving, that familiaring young yet state of this nearing becomes it facilitating. Pretty wild, right? And, and something in us may want to tame it. Something in us may insist, well, we still get the meaning, don't we? And academic philosophers have debated this. Do we? Do we really get the meaning? And what does it indicate when we want to close down like that and say, well, no, but we understand. Why do we find it so tempting? Some of us, at least. Why do we have such a hard time understanding the difference a different worldview can make in the most practical and intimate sense? Or why do we think we understand? Now, the point in part has to do with where we come from. Arguably, few, if any, people in the dominant culture who claim to have an interest in magic or who claim to practice it come from a lineage of realized teachers going back hundreds of years, let alone thousands. Few, if any, people in the dominant culture who claim to practice magic or believe in it come from a specific place where they still live, a place where they lived their whole life, a place that has known them their whole life, a place that they themselves know intimately because they were steeped in it 
steeped in the powers that flow there, able to sense the coming together of power and place. They knew that place, its power, its being, and the beings there who carry those powers too. So they knew the place, its powers, its beings intimately, in part through a language that expresses the alive and a love relationality of that place and its beings and powers. Imagine a person like that, their experience, how different it might be. Instead, people in the dominant culture speak a language that programs them on a deep, unconscious level to think of the world as made up of mostly nouns, mostly objects, fragments, parts. To think of the world as made up of subject-object duality. To think of the world as a stage for playing out conscious human purposes. And then the people in this culture act that out when they get on an airplane and fly five, ten, even 20,000 miles round trip to attend some kind of magical gathering or healing event or some help, self-help event, whatever it might be. No sense of rootedness in place. None of these other elements that we were talking about. So what we see is just human thinking. Most of the thinking about magic in the dominant culture or anything infected by the dominant culture is human thinking in the narrow sense. Whereas magic is the thinking of much larger ecologies of mind, much larger patternings. Ultimately, magic is the thinking of the earth and the cosmos. It typically has a rootedness in specific places. Rootedness in the mind of nature, the patterning unfolding in particular places. And at its highest levels, it has a rootedness in the nature of mind. Mind of nature, nature of mind. Dominant culture language doesn't seem to directly express the patterning that connects or the patterning that constitutes or creates all the happenings of life. And this only encourages people infected by the dominant culture to break the vital connections in the patterning. Even while claiming to be innovating, claiming to be working to make things better. That's part of the irony. We know that on Turtle Island, people speak, speaking and thinking like the Blackfoot and others like them, they live for thousands of years handing down magic from one realized person to another, body to body, in specific ecologies, handing down healing, handing down attunement with the patterning that connects and creates all things. And they did this in a manner that kept an astonishing abundance of life going here for thousands of years. Meanwhile, in Europe, Ecologies were degrading for thousands of years. The invaders came to Turtle Island and they couldn't believe what they saw. Wow! Massive herds of animals, bison herds, might have been the largest herds that had ever been on the planet, the bison herds. Flocks of birds like massive clouds 
casting shadows on the ground for days as they migrated. Salmon in the rivers, you could hear them two miles away. Couldn't put a boat in the river. And within a few centuries, all tragically collapsed. And we find ourselves with the world of wounds that both Yeats and Aldo Leopold lamented. Talked about that in the last contemplation. Now this isn't to say a person born speaking Blackfoot or Trobriand or any number of similar languages automatically understands magic or is somehow enlightened. Obviously there can be ignorance in such cultures. In fact, the whole point here is that the language, the stories, the teachings, the initiations help people to mature, help them to wake up. And so we're acknowledging here just how much of a gap there is from that sort of starting point for spiritual life in relation to the starting point the dominant culture has bequeathed the rest of us. And what the basic patterns of the culture are going to result in. If we grew up in an ecology where a more skillful and realistic manner of thinking is encoded in the language, myths, and stories, embodied in the elders, and alive and alive in the community of life, all the beings, all our relations out there, and in the human relationship with that community. Then as we move into adulthood and decide we really want to go deep, well, it's a very different starting point. Now obviously we even talk about starting point is silly in one sense because we are reality right now, right here. Nevertheless, there is a developmental dimension. And most people in the dominant culture couldn't possibly have any idea what they're missing if no one around them can embody it and the language and the culture themselves seduce us all away from it. And that helps explain why high-level teachers in some of the wisdom traditions have privately said that they cannot really teach people in the dominant culture. There are exceptions, of course. Some students from the dominant culture have become very accomplished practitioners in their lineages. But various teachers have said that, generally speaking, they have to water things down. And Carl Jung, knowing the Western psyche intimately, he predicted this. He basically wrote about this. said a lot of these wisdom traditions, they're not for Westerners. Westerners can't handle it. He didn't feel hopeless about us, but he thought... We have to do a lot of work on our psyche first, a lot of healing. Meanwhile, countless self-appointed gurus, magicians, coaches, self-help experts, thought leaders, executives, they present themselves as having realized something profound. When we look with a lot of care, we may find that they offer some important things, some kind of important self-help and self-healing or whatever it might be. And it might feel like magic because we're so desperate, so hungry. And so while such people may feel they have broken through and that they have found the answers, because we're trying to be generous with some of the people 
in in these cases, just both really compassionate and also just trying to look with positivity for people who, you, you know, they're multi, 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 multi millionaires and they're out selling the ideas of the dominant culture. And what do we make of that? Well, they, they must feel that there's something to it. But much of it may be as far away from the kind of magic we have tried to inquire into here as conquest consciousness in general is from being indigenous or as far away as our habitual mind is from a mind fully liberated into wisdom, love, and beauty. Part of this has to do with values and the tremendous challenge of living our own values, living them, not talking about them. We value things like wisdom, love, beauty, peace. And magic means making those values real, living them out and letting the medicine of those values radiate into the world intimately. Experience them as part of reality. Dorothy Lee suggests that Trobrianders experience non-linear pattern as a value. And they only experience lineality, linear pattern, when value has become destroyed or simply seems absent. That's a remarkable suggestion. They experience what is the norm to conquest consciousness only when value has become destroyed or seems absent. Now let's go back to Bateson. We're getting close to the close of our contemplation here. Now he wrote in his book Mind and Nature, A Necessary Unity that the book could have been called The Pattern Which Connects. We've mentioned that phrase many times now. He says that that phrase is a synonym for the book's title. And we can think about that in relation to everything we've considered so far. We've tried to use a verbal form as far as possible, as often as possible. So we kept talking about the word patterning, you know, kept using the word patterning as part of dealing with the problems of the English language and to get out of the subject-object duality and the habit of treating the world as a collection of objects. So many nouns in English. And we kept trying to think of patterning as an alive and a love creative activity. And when Dorothy Lee gave us the analogy of the sweater, she pointed toward a patterning that connects sleeves to neckline lover to gift, all the way through, patterning. And Bateson here says the necessary unity of mind and nature. Imagine that, that would be the unity of nature and culture, wildness and civilization. Bateson is saying the necessary unity of mind and nature is a pattern connecting all things, or we could say constituting all things. Of this patterning which connects, Bateson asks, why do schools teach almost nothing about it? The simplest answer might be because we don't know it. I think he realized that. He's a little more critical of schools, though, when he gives his answer. 
But he asks a, another lovely question. It's a nice way to put it. What pattern connects the crab to the lobster and the orchid to the primrose and all four of them to me and me to you? What is the pattern which connects all living creatures? Now, we could note that this is not quite the right way to think of it. We've been trying to emphasize that. And Bateson understands that, but he, he relates objects in his question. There's an orchid, a lobster, a primrose, a human. And then what's the pattern that connects them? Or imagine a pattern that connects separate things, even though he himself tried to emphasize intimacy and unity. So he was stuck, too, with our language and our habits and we could go further. We could ask, what is the patterning that constitutes or creates the orchid, the lobster, and the human all together? What constitutes the mutual arising of all of these? In that mutual arising of creative patterning, we find magic. Magic taps into the patterning that connects, the patterning that constitutes the happenings of life. And this is how it brings about its effects. That's what Yates is getting at, his third principle. Now we need to go into that further to understand. We're, we're, we're trying to not rush to understand and explain Yeats's third principle because it's so crucial to magic. And even now, our initial reaction might be to say, wait, this is getting unscientific. Bateson was a no-nonsense scientist who, in fact, didn't believe in some of the magic we have taken seriously in our contemplations. That's because he didn't have the science for them, didn't even have the evidence for them. Things that he would have written off, and he explicitly does in his writing, we have good evidence now for. I think he just might not have been ready for it. It shows how challenging this is because he was a very progressive thinker for a scientist. And nevertheless, Bateson suggests that we may have to become in some sense anti-scientific to truly touch the patterning that connects. Or we could say, again, the patterning that creates. So I, I, this is interesting. He doesn't want to let go of the science. Jung was also torn by this. It's just interesting to see that division in people. Bateson uses the word aesthetic sometimes to designate responsiveness to the patterning that creates, the patterning that connects and creates. And we've used the term eco-sensual awareness. And we've also just called it magic. Magic means responsiveness to the patterning that connects and creates. And thus it means the practice and realization of eco-sensual awareness, which in turn means the practice and realization of wisdom, love, and beauty, where love explicitly includes ethics and compassion, not just empathy. So magic demands the practice and realization of wisdom, love, and beauty, including ethics and compassion. Bateson contrasts the scientific mind, which sees its subject matter as an object, <laughs> right? 
the subject matter as an object. He contrasts that with an aesthetic orientation that meets things with a sense of recognition and empathy. Those are the words he uses, but again, we should recontextualize there because Bateson lacked sufficient training in the wisdom traditions. That's okay. It's not a mean criticism of him. It's just that the doctrine of recognition has a profound meaning in the wisdom traditions, and empathy gets recontextualized as compassion, a much faster and more skillful space. In any case, we touch here on the necessary unity of wisdom, love, and beauty. Bateson wants us to see how recognizing the patterning that connects and creates has to do with the mind of beauty. And we have to make clear that it also has to do with wisdom and love. Our practice of wisdom, love, and beauty Let's emphasize that, our practice of love, our practice of beauty, our practice of wisdom, and our realization of these means our responsiveness to the patterning that creates and connects all things in mutuality and fundamental wholeness. It thus also means responsibility our ontological obligations, obligations to the very being of the cosmos, that we take care of beings, of things, simply because they exist as part of the wholeness. It's part of our beingness. There aren't separate things. Now, maybe a more technical way to put this patterning that connects and creates We could call it the sacred creative ordering in, through, as relational openness and make that all hyphenated. As if we're trying to get English closer to reality. And we could thereby try to recognize the sacred, the creative, the relational openness, and the total mutuality. But that's a cumbersome, that's a bunch of words. I don't know how many words that is. It's a long hyphenated expression because English can become like a straitjacket for the soul when we try to practice, realize, and express wisdom, love, and beauty. The most simple and direct expressions in English can seduce us into wrong thinking and give us the impression that we have understood what we actually don't. You know, so we can use simple expressions, but then people just think they're either silly or we we understand them already. The cumbersome terms, though, there are not necessarily more accurate than just calling it responsiveness, mutuality, care, or calling it wisdom, love, and beauty, or calling it the sacred. We can call this patterning the sacred, understanding it as alive and a love. The patterning is primordial awareness in activity. Now, before we close it might be helpful to touch on one final analogy for patterning, you know, because we're saying we don't really understand it. Maybe one final analogy will show us the difference between how things might be and how we just naively relate to them. And then we'll come to a close. And we go into detail with this analogy on the Wisdom, Love, and Beauty blog in that series we mentioned before. We're just going to hit the highlights. So we could understand patterning and magic, how magic works by thinking of a hologram. 
Now let's contrast a hologram with a photograph. And we're going to talk about the old school, you know, photographs where you actually had to have a film because we're going to talk about a holographic negative and a photographic negative. So if you don't remember what that's like or you never experienced it, look it up. Now the first thing to realize is that a photograph is made with incoherent light and a hologram is made with coherent light. Incoherent light means the photons are moving in every direction and that mirrors our own incoherence. That's part of the analogy. When we go into a situation and some uh, some dimension of us says yes to it, some dimension of us says no to it, we experience conflict. When we feel totally coherent, we feel no inner conflict. We hold a puppy in our arms. Do you love that puppy? Oh, there's no conflict. Yes, I love this puppy. Now, when it comes to our own parent, with whom we might have had a very difficult experience, there's part of us that maybe hasn't forgiven them. Part of us might even hate them. It's incoherent. We have to resolve those incoherencies. When light becomes coherent, it can do things incoherent light cannot accomplish. For instance, a laser, which is coherent light, it can burn through metal. If you had a light bulb with the same energy flowing through it, it could never do that. When we make an old school photograph, we have this thing called a negative. And the negative is, is a film emulsion that captures the photographic image. The incoherent light records what it has interacted with. If we look at the negative, we can recognize the image immediately. So if someone, say they made an image of a forest, and we look at the negative, we immediately see a forest. We don't have any question about the subject of the photograph. It's going to look different when it gets printed, but we can look at the negative and say, well, it's a picture of a forest. Let's develop it and see what it looks like. Now we have a big contrast here because we can make a hologram using coherent light like a laser. And what we first do is split the laser beam. We shine part of the beam on our subject matter and then we recombine it with the other half of the beam and it creates what's called an interference pattern. And that will be how the negative, the holographic negative gets produced. And here's the key point. If we look at that negative under ordinary incoherent light, we'll see some kind of pattern there, but we have no idea, no idea whatsoever, not a clue what the hologram will look like. If we look at a holographic negative in ordinary incoherent light, we cannot tell if the image will be of a forest or of a pile of money. No idea. Can't tell. There's nothing indicating what it, what it actually is. It seems essential to let that land with us, to let the soul receive it for us and take care of it, because it's an important lesson in our analogy. Once we shine coherent light through that holographic negative, we see the full hologram, not a flat two-dimensional image of a forest, but a three-dimensional image of the forest. And without that coherent light, we don't see anything that makes sense. So there's a pattern there that we don't 
recognize for what it is. And the forest is indistinguishable from a pile of money until we shine the coherent light through it. Now let's say we take the regular photographic negative, the one we made with incoherent light in the ordinary way. We had a picture of a forest, remember? We cut it in half. And we take one half of the negative, and of course we see half of a forest. If we make a print, we get half of a forest. Let's say we do that with the holographic negative. We cut it in half. Then we shine coherent light through it. Remarkably, we still see the whole forest. Not half a forest, but the whole forest. And we can go cut that negative in half again. And now even though we've got a quarter of the original negative, and we shine coherent light through it, we still have a whole forest. At that point, if we did the same thing to the other photographic negative, we'd have only a quarter of a forest. And then an eighth and a sixteenth. With the hologram, we'd still have a whole forest. Why? Because in a hologram, the whole is interwoven through what we would call the parts. The patterning, remember we, we've been just getting at this, this non-duality of part and whole, unity and diversity. The total interwovenness. Let's say there was a butterfly in the original scene. And let's say that we cut the photographic negative so that the butterfly is now gone. And we take that half, we make a print, no butterfly, it's gone. Someone looking at that print that we made from half the negative, they wouldn't even know the butterfly was missing. But if we make a hologram, and we cut the negative the same way as if we were trying to cut the butterfly out of the image. We say, oh, the butterfly was on the right side. Let's cut that whole right side off. But we still find that butterfly there when we shine coherent light through the negative. Under incoherent light, we've got no idea the image even has a butterfly in it. But even if we try to cut out the butterfly again and again, we still find her. They still find her in the image. Because she's encoded in every part. And the whole is encoded in her. We could cut, cut out the butterfly. Say, oh, the butterfly was in the top right corner. Just cut her out. And now we shine the laser through and we still get the whole forest. Isn't that amazing? Right there, where we thought it was just a butterfly, we got the whole forest. Now imagine we take a photograph just before the butterfly enters the scene. There's, there's the forest. Let's say it's a very still day, no, no wind. We take a photograph. And then a butterfly lands on a flower. We say, oh, that's pretty. Take it. Let's take another photograph. And when we compare the negatives, they'll only differ in this very small way. There's one image, it's got a butterfly on the flower. The other one, no butterfly. 
Image is the same though. But with a hologram, we know the entire negative has changed from that butterfly landing on that flower. It has affected the whole scene and now she is everywhere in that whole scene and the whole scene is everywhere in her. The whole patterning. And we could picture her try to take up the holographic frame of mind. And we could picture that force and picture the butterfly entering in to the scene. And we could imagine how every movement must immediately affect the whole pattern. Not even in time, but intimately and immediately. And now, we could picture a sage or a shaman entering the scene, entering the forest, kneeling on the earth, and making an offering of tobacco to the forest, making an offering of compassion to the forest and its beings. In our holographic vision, we know that affects the whole scene, the whole forest immediately, senses those words of wisdom, love, and beauty, the offering of compassion, the intention of gratitude and humility and attunement. But let's check our own intuitions with painful honesty. Does it seem like in the practice of everyday life people of the dominant culture live as if the world functions like a hologram? Or do the people in the dominant culture live as if the world functions like a photograph. I mean, if we saw that scene, we'd say, oh, there's a person over there. If we saw the picture, we'd say there's a person at the bottom right corner of the picture. If we were painting it, we're painting a person in the bottom right corner of the painting. Do we really live and really experience the world, really practice and realize our lives in the manner of a hologram, or is it, frankly, in the manner of a photograph? And if magic depends on the more holographic frame of mind, how do we get there? If we're honest and rigorous about what it means to know, and what we can claim to know on the basis of lived experience, it seems we have a fairly limited and limiting view that we don't truly wonder stand, wonder stand that the presence or absence of the butterfly changes everything or imagine how horrified we would be at extinction of butterflies. The monarchs are dwindling. Their presence and their absence matters to the whole immediately. Understanding the butterfly in, through, and as the principles of magic involves opening up to the synchronicity of butterfly, the way each butterfly already ruptures the ordinary barriers of space and time. It involves a deep practice and realization, one 
that goes against the habits ingrained by language, education, economics, science, and even the arts of the dominant culture. So once again, we have to resist the temptation to say we understand patterning and magic once we understand this analogy. You know, we use the analogy to show we don't understand. Not to try to understand it, but to show that we don't yet understand. And we just seek to get oriented toward better ways of knowing ourselves in the world, better ways of knowing so that understanding this patterning that connects and creates all things could become real for us. This patterning is mind in the sense of nature. It is the mind of nature, our mind. And it is the nature of our mind. It's the mind of nature and the nature of mind. And it's immediate, intimate manifestations. To say mind is not a thing, but an activity, well, that comes as no major innovation in the dominant culture in terms of intellectual speculation, analysis, and argument. But it does suggest a major realization yet to come. Once we see that we don't yet understand, we see there must be a revelation, even a revolution, still waiting for a better practice better ways of life to bring it to fruition. Magic as a way of knowing ourselves in the world means a way of knowing by being this patterning, this holographic magic, this sacred creative ordering that relationally cultivates or practices the whole of life onward. It's what functions now, in, through, as us. We don't manipulate but we do participate. And with right intention plus deep awareness, magic and miracles can happen right now in our life. Practicing our highest intentions and real awareness, mindfulness in the deepest sense, not any facile sense of it. The patterning is a play of correspondences, a dance of synchronicities, a spiraling out of archetypes by means of sacred powers and inconceivable causes. They're inconceivable because they're not knowable as objects. But they are realizable as intimacy, as divine madness, as holy sanity. Holiness has a place here because wholeness, hologram, healing, holiness, they all share the same root. Holiness doesn't have to mean something religious in some kind of narrow dogmatic sense. It means recognition of wholeness and healing in the world. Recognition of sacredness. Recognition and realization of patterning and our participation in it. The wisdom traditions teach us how to cultivate a mind of beauty, a mind of love, a mind of wisdom that helps us become sensitive and responsive to the patterning that connects and creates all things, and thus to take care of all things as integral to the patterning that we ourselves are. Magic involves the synchronization and the synchronicity of heart, mind, body, world, and cosmos. It's the practice of the wild, the practice of ecological and spiritual intelligence and creativity. 
If you have questions, reflections, or stories of this kind of magic, or whatever kind of magic you think is real, any reflections or questions or stories about the magic and mystery of life, then send them in through wisdomloveandbeauty.org and we might bring some of them into a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul, your patterning that creates and connects all things, and the soul of the world, patterning of the world are obviously now not two things. So take good care of